today we have the pleasure of having Dr. Shanholtz. Dr. Shanholtz uh, got his MD at Jefferson and trained here for residency at Maryland uh, and followed up with a critical care fellowship at Hopkins and then came back for an oncology fellowship here. So, um, so he is perfect person to talk today on uh, critical care management of hematologic uh, malignancies. So um, he's the MICU director, and, uh, and we see a lot of this topic here. So without further ado. Thank you. Thank you. I first gave this talk uh, about a year ago, and I was pleased by the, uh, and impressed by the turnout. It was in the room across the, the hall, and then I realized it was all because of the lunch. You know, that's why people came. So thank you for coming to lunch, and um, I'll, I'll, I'll try to give some education as well. So yeah, hematologic malignancies and critical care, these are stuff that we see not uncommonly in the medical population, uh, and there are some specific topics we run into that you wouldn't see in the general ICU population that we, in concert with the on, medical oncologists, need to know how to, to treat so first of all, um, I'm not going to dwell on this slide, but essentially the classification of malignancies basically is directed at the lineage and uh, the new classification from WHO takes into account the, the morphology of the cells uh, along with the um, cytogenetic lineage. So depending on whether you're talking about uh, lymphoid cells or myeloid cells, that's basically how you're going to classify the malignancy. The WHO classification of 2008 is the most recent uh, used in the lymphoid neoplasms. Most of these we would classify as non-Hodgkin's lymphomas, but it also includes myeloma, plasmacytomas, and uh, Hodgkin's lymphoma as well. And amongst the myeloid neoplasms, we include things like uh, the myeloproliferative disorders like polycythemia vera, chronic myeloid leukemia, uh, as well as the acute leukemias, whether they are, uh, have specific cytogenetic precursors or uh, whether they're uh, treatment-related or other So the first critical care complication of hematologic malignancies I want to talk about that we face uh, all the time in the ICU is uh, acute tumor lysis syndrome. And if I had to give a definition, we'll keep it simple. It's basically the uh, lysis, the rapid development of metabolic uh, abnormalities from the cell turnover. It accompanies the release of the intracellular contents uh, into the bloodstream. And the resulting clinical features include the metabolic derangements and then resulting acute renal failure. If we were to look at, you know, what happens when intracellular contents spill into the bloodstream, most acutely you would get hyperkalemia, hyperphosphatemia, a reflex hypocalcemia, and then due to a conversion uh, step, the uh, oxidation of uh, purine metabolites to form uric acid and hyperuricemia. And the clinical settings we see this are in cells with high tumor burdens and high cell turnover. So things like the acute leukemias, um, especially even the chronic leukemias, 
the lymphomas, but especially the high-grade lymphomas like Burkitt's lymphoma, immunoblastic lymphoma, and lymphomas with uh, bulky tumors. Uh, we see it in solid tumors. Solid tumors don't turn over nearly as fast as the, the high-grade lymphomas and leukemias, but some do. So small cell uh, lymphoma, uh, small cell uh, carcinoma of the lung, that has a very uh, high proliferative rate. Breast cancer, um, not so much because of the fast growth, but because of the large tumor burdens that it can cause, uh, and neuroblastoma. Sometimes we see as evidence of large tumor burden, nonspecific cell markers like LDH. If you ever saw somebody with a lymphoma, their LDH is high because lymphoma cells rely very heavily on um, anaerobic metabolism. And in fact, you can get a lactic acidosis uh, from uh, large uh, tumor burdens of lymphomas. ATLS has been described in almost every disease. If there's a large enough tumor burden or aggressive enough treatment, um, you, can, you can get uh, a tumor lysis syndrome. You can also get it spontaneously from uh, patients presenting um, with cell turnover um, and necrotic lesions um, you know, as soon as they present. And it's been re related to multiple treatments, not just cytotoxic chemo, but also radiation. Steroids. You go near a patient with a high-grade lymphoma, like a Burkitt's lymphoma, which can double in 24 hours uh, with corticosteroids, and you can have enough tumor lysis to shut down the kidneys. It's also been shown with uh, hormonal uh, manipulations like tamoxifen and breast cancer with biologics like interferon uh, and rituximab. And in patients who are in remission but are getting aggressive preparation for bone marrow transplant. And if the kidneys are already damaged, uh, their ability to clear uh, phosphate, their ability to clear uric acid is going to be further impaired, and it's going to create a vicious cycle uh, and lead to uh, more renal failure. So some would be splitters and say that uh, there's, there's a difference between uh, most of the metabolic abnormalities that you see in acute tumor lysis syndrome and hyperuricemia because your hyperuricemia requires... Um, the conversion of uh, purines uh, to, to hypoxanthine, xanthine, uh, and then uric acid. But I think for the most part, we would incorporate it into the syndrome. Allopurinol inhibits xanthine oxidase uh, and inhibits the formation of uh, uric acid, but it does nothing to stop the uh, accumulation of upstream metabolites. Um, and essentially the pathogenesis of the acute renal failure is due um, uh, primarily to the precipitation of uric acid crystals and uh, phosphate crystals in the distal tubules, essentially creating an obstructive uropathy. Um, now, early on in malignancies, uh, it was thought that um, the uh, renal failure uh, from a tumor lysis syndrome was purely a urate nephropathy, uh, and much of the treatment was directed at preventing uh, urate nephropathy. Um, and then as we did that and we started alkalinizing the urine, which I'll go into a little bit more in a few slides, um, we started precipitating calcium phosphate and realized that it was actually a multifactorial renal failure. 
So what do we do? So for the average patient, the prophylaxis should start as soon as we meet the patient. Now, there was a tradition at the cancer center when I was there that uh, Friday nights, uh, usually after the uh, hematology lab closed um, and would no longer be able to process the bone marrow, that's when the, all the acute leukemics presented. Um, and it was up to, uh, to us to sort of get these patients through the weekend, maybe use a little cytoreductive therapy with hydroxyurea before they can get the uh, mega marrow and get a diagnosis made. So as soon as we greet the patients, we would shake their hands, put an IV in them, and give them saline um, and hydrate them prior to cytotoxic therapy. Uh, for the average patient with hyperuricemia or at risk for hyperuricemia, we would start uh, prophylaxis with allopurinol. And for it to kick in uh, faster, we would use high-dose allopurinol for the first day or so, um, and then 300 milligrams a day. In the older textbooks, in the older practice, um, and some may still do this, um, and I'll go into why I think most have gotten away from it, and I don't recommend it, uh, there was urinary alkalinization uh, where they would give sodium bicarb and acetazolamide to try and maintain the urine pH uh, greater than 7. And forced diuresis where we would volume load the patients uh, with 150 to 200 mLs, uh, trying to get the urine output up to 150 to 200 mLs an hour, uh, diuretics if need be. And the treatment of the metabolic abnormalities or the standard treatments that you would normally do with hyperkalemia, whether it was diuretics, glucose, insulin, uh, K-exalate, or uh, hyperphosphatemia with phosphate binders. Um, um, and hypocalcemia, um, because of the uh, high calcium phosphate pro uh, product and the risk of phosphate nephropathy, uh, we would only treat hypocalcemia if the patient was symptomatic. And the monitoring of the electrolytes and calcium phosphate, um, Q6 to 8 hours, that really only needs to be frequent in the first day or so. Um, and again, the first thing you need to worry about is the hyperkalemia. It's not typical. I mean, chances are if the patient is going into lice quickly where you need to make uh, treatment uh, decisions within six hours, um, that's going to be in the first 24 hours. You don't find somebody who has no rise in their potassium and phosphate, you know, on day one or day two, and then all of a sudden in day three it happens. So if they're going to lice fast, it, you're going to see it on day one. If they're not lysing fast, then you probably don't need to check Q6-hour labs forever. All you're doing is uh, phlebotomizing the patient and bleeding them for no reason. So uric acid um, has a pK of uh, about 5. Under acidic urine, it crystallizes and causes uh, essentially an obstructive uropathy. So, what, uh, so the treatment used to be let's alkalinize the urine. And what we found when we started alkalinizing the urine and getting the urine pH above 7 was that we precipitated calcium phosphate and caused an even worse nephropathy. The urate nephropathy is you know, is easily reversible. Uh, it's easy to solubilize um, uric acid or clear it with uh, dialysis. But calcium phosphate, you're essentially turning the kidneys into plaster of Paris. Um, and that's much harder to reverse. The problem 
with the conventional management is that a lot of these patients are older. They may not have the best cardiovascular systems. They may not have the best lungs. Uh, and they're not going to tolerate all the volume loading you need to give them for the conventional treatment. Plus, uh, allopurinol has a lot of side effects, uh, uh, allergic reactions, rashes, uh, liver abnormalities, and these patients are already set ups for those kinds of complications. Um, so in the high-risk patients or the patients who aren't responding to allopurinol or the patients who have high uric acids uh, to begin with, we can obviate the need for overdoing it with the volume loading uh, and uh, some of the side effects of allopurinol with urate oxidase, which uh, catabolizes uh, uric acid to allantoin, which is five to ten times more uh, soluble in the urine than uric acid. When I used this, and we were part of the uh, compassionate release study um, that Sanofi did years ago, I recommend that we hold the allopurinol um, because what you want to do is you don't want the formation of upstream metabolites. You would like to see that converted um, to uh, uh, hypoxanthine, xanthine, and then to uric acid so you can lyse it. The um, urate oxidase uh, respiracase is biologically active for 18 to 21 uh, hours. Um, so uh, it's also active in the test tube. So if you get follow-up uric acids and within a day, they need to be sent down to the lab on ice uh, or you're going to get spuriously low uric acid levels. How well does it work? Well, it worked pretty well um, at lowering uric acid. Uh, and I've seen uric acid levels lowered within just a couple of hours. Uh, it, the protocol here calls for a straight uh, six milligram dose um, rather than a weight-based dose. Um, for uh, uric acid levels that are above eight. Uh, and in patients whose follow-up uric acid levels are above four, we would retreat. Um, and we publish those data. It saves a lot of money because it's a very expensive drug um, and it works um, whether the patients are uh, by ideal body weight and heavily obese or not. Um, so we can use a drug at a fraction of the cost. What is the evidence? The evidence is that it's very effective at treating uric acid. Is there evidence that it actually prevents renal failure and saves lives? No. Um, so expert opinion is that in the high-risk patients or the patients that are refractory, that we use this drug uh, to lower uric acid. But um, it's uh, a matter of faith to think that it's actually going to prevent renal failure. Going further, the disease I want to focus on because we see a lot of it here at University of Maryland is acute myeloid leukemia, uh, the most common acute leukemia in adults. Um, the classic classification is the French-American-British class, which is purely a morphologic classification. Um, now that we realize the prognosis is more related to specific cytogenetic genetic abnormalities. If there are specific recurrent genetic abnormalities, we classify it by those abnormalities because that determines prognosis. There are the good ones, the not-so-good ones, and the really bad ones. The good ones tend to be things that are divisible, that are even numbers divisible by eight, or will add up to something divisible by eight. That's the easy way to think about it. Um, the stuff with prime numbers are the really bad ones, so you don't like stuff with fives and sevens. 
the exception being uh, cupromyelocytic leukemia, which I'll talk about at length, uh, which has a translocation of 1517, and according to Dr. Amati, 1517 average out to 16, which is divisible by 8, so you get surrounded by that one, but that's probably the one you want to know the, the most. The critical care complication that we see with the acute myeloid leukemia is hyperleukocytosis. So uh, that would arbitrarily be defined as a white blood count uh, of greater than 100,000. Um, that's not an absolute cutoff because it depends on what those cells are. Uh, if you're talking about chronic myeloid leukemia, those are people who walk around with mature white cells. Uh, and they can have white counts into the hundreds of thousands. They can have a leukocrit that is significant um, and maybe almost as large as the hematocrit. Um, and yet they're not going to get into a lot of trouble. Why? Because those are mature cells um, and they're highly deformable. Uh, on the other hand, acute promyeloid leukemia may be symptomatic. Uh, with a white count uh, of greater than 10,000 because uh, the progranules are very um, biologically active and prothrombotic. Um, hyperleukocytosis occurs in roughly about 10% of all AML with a, that range of 5 to 13% um, and maybe 10 to 30% of ALL. Uh, it's a poor prognostic factor if people present with 100,000 white count. Um, um, they're more likely to get into complications and have a worse, uh, more treacherous overall course. Complications include leukostasis, particularly in the lungs and the brain, DIC, uh, the acute tumor lysis syndrome that I went over, and the pseudohypoxemia that uh, also goes by the nickname leukocyte larceny. Um, so what you'll see, especially in a patient with over 100,000 white counts, I mean, what are the granules? In myeloid cells, uh, they're superoxides. So where do they get their oxygen from? They get it from, from the respiratory system uh, and the oxygen that's being carried in the blood. So if you have uh, over 100,000 uh, myeloblasts, uh, they're going to be um, absorbing uh, oxygen from the bloodstream uh, into their uh, granules and progranules. And you may have somebody with a SAT of uh, in the 90s uh, who does not look hypoxemic, does not look symptomatic, and you send the blood down to the lab, and by the time it gets to the lab, even though it is on ice, uh, the oxygen is going to be absorbed off of the red cells and into the uh, granules uh, of the white cells, and you're going to have these PO2s in the 40s or 50s, which makes absolutely no sense. They don't need ECMO. Um, they, they, you know, you just need to realize what's happening or run the um, blood gas immediately from, uh, from when the time it's drawn, not have it sit on ice for, uh, for a while. So what's the treatment uh, for most patients? Um, leukophoresis and sometimes some cytoreductive chemotherapy like hydroxyurea. We used to radiate these people, radiate the brain and the lungs as soon as they came in the door. That's more controversial, and I don't think it's ever been shown uh, to prevent complications from hyperleukocytosis. And uh, especially with differentiation syndrome, there's the use of dexamethasone. Of the AMLs, the one that I want to focus on is this disease. Um, you can see 
large immature cells, lots of granules. In fact, the granules are spilling out into the periphery uh, spontaneously. There are big nucleoli. I thought these were nucleoli, and then I realized it's the ASH logo that's, um, you know, in, 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 the, in the corner. And what are these cells? They're pro, promyelocytes, and the disease that we want to talk about is acute promyelocytic leukemia. If there is one of the AMLs, if there's one of the leukemias that an intensivist needs to know, it's this one. And why? You know, it's common amongst young and middle-aged adults. Um, it's got the common genetic abnormality that, that uh, directs treatment. The 1517 translocation um, that causes a fusion gene of uh, cupromyelocytic leukemia and the retinoic acid receptor alpha. They can present very sick with hemorrhagic or thrombotic complications, usually hemorrhagic complications. But the other thing is they're young, they're sick, and they're curable. All right? With modern treatment with differentiation agents with ATRA and um, uh, arsenic trioxide, you can have cure rates that are in the 90%, and there was a New England Journal article that came out last year that they don't even need cytotoxic chemotherapy. You can cure a good fraction of them just with the differentiating agents, all retinoic acid, and arsenic trioxide alone. So they may be curable even without chemotherapy. So these, this is a high-stakes disease, uh, and we don't want to lose these patients. This is the complication we don't want to want to see. Most of the early deaths are still due to hemorrhage, especially bleeding into the brain. There are multiple mechanisms for the hemorrhage. Uh, usually on the boards, you think of the nice matching APL, DIC, but it's not as simple as pure DIC. Um, there's also fibrinolysis. Uh, from urokinase-like plasminogen activators, elastase, and exin-2, and mixed in with this is thrombocytopenia. So they have a multiple hit that can set them up for bleeding. Thrombosis is a little less common. You see it more in the microgranular variety uh, and the APL variants with variant genetic abnormalities, um, and it's due to the procoagulants released by the granules. Differentiation syndrome, um, when I was in training, used to be known as the retinoic acid syndrome, but it's not specific to retinoic acid alone. Uh, It's also been described with arsenic trioxide, and it should be suspected in any APL patient that's getting ATRA uh, or arsenic trioxide who have symptoms of dyspnea, unexplained fever, uh, weight gain, peripheral edema, effusions, uh, renal failure, and non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema. Uh, What's the treatment? Dexamethasone. And some of uh, the hematologists will start dexamethasone early in these patients. They may need temporary discontinuation of ATRA and uh, arsenic trioxide if severe, Uh, but I stress that's temporary discontinuation. You know, usually uh, if somebody has ARDS, we don't usually like to expose them to the inciting exposure uh, again uh, and set them up for um, another round. But again, these are people who can be cured of their leukemia with arsenic or with uh, all retinoic acid. And so it's going to be very important to restart it even though you just got the patient out of a critical illness and you really don't want to. 
So what is the evidence-based management of APL? One, it's a medical emergency. So if a hematologist tells you that you've got a patient with acute promyelocytic leukemia, they're young, um, they've got a white count of 15,000 or above 20,000, and they're worried about them and want to treat them in the ICU, that's good enough for me. All right, they don't need to be on a ventilator to get into the ICU or bleeding out to get into the ICU. Again, this is a high-stakes game, and I would admit them early. What do we do about the coagulopathy? Heparin is very controversial. We used to use it, uh, you know, uh, back in the old days. Nobody really knew what they were doing, so we hedged bets with half-dose heparin. Again, that was all anecdotal. Uh, I think people have gone away from that. Uh, it's FFP or cryoprecipitate or platelets to maintain targets, uh, arbitrary targets of fibrinogens of 100 to 150, platelets of maybe 30 to, um, to 50. Use of heparin, use of an antifibrinolytic like tranexaminic acid or uh, Amacar uh, is questionable. Uh, I think um, most have gotten away from that now. Leukophoresis should be avoided because of the risk of precipitating fatal uh, hemorrhage. Again, those cells don't need to be uh, messed with. They lyse their progranules very easily. Prophylactic steroids could be given, and I think with high white count uh, APL, most of the leukemiologists would start the dexamethasone early. Arsenic trioxide requires careful monitoring to be maintain electrolytes in the normal range, and because of QT prolongation, uh, it needs monitoring with uh, daily EKGs. Um, Malignancy-associated hypercalcemia. This is a complicated slide that shows that I have way too much time on my hands, and I barely understand it myself, but the whole point is that uh, there are multiple factors that affect calcium homeostasis including the parathyroid gland, the bone reabsorption, intestinal reabsorption, and kidney reabsorption of calcium. And hypercalcemia of malignancy has, uh, you know, is multifactorial. It can be parathyroid hormone-related polypeptide, which is about 80% of them, and mostly in the solid tumors um, like squamous cell CA. Um, but you can see it in some of the lymphomas. What is the lymphoma that is most commonly associated uh, with PTHRP? See it on the MedID service. HTLV is in the name, so it's HTLV1-related uh, lymphoma. Osteoclast-activating factor is um, most of the, the rest of them, and what is the archetypical disease for uh, osteoclast activating factor, which is probably IL-6, multiple myeloma. And why is that significant? That it's not due to PTHRP and it's, and it's likely related to um, um, IL-6 or osteoclast activating factor. Uh, the significance is that it's unlikely to be picked up by a bone scan uh, technetium pyrophosphate bone scan because pyrophosphate is taken up by the osteoblast and the hypercalcemia activity in um, multiple myeloma is almost all uh, osteoclastic. So the way to pick this up um, is by skeletal surveys um, because bone scans can be misleadingly negative. 
and in a small proportion of patients, less than 1%, uh, hypercalcemia can be due to endogenous calcitriol production, especially the lymphomas. So what are the clinical manifestations? And the clinical manifestations tend to be very protean. So if you don't think about it, um, it's going to be easy to miss. Uh, the mnemonic is stones, bones, abdominal groans, and psychic moans. So these patients can come in dehydrated, calciuresis, takes a lot of fluid with it, and uh, these patients can be extremely hypovolemic. Anorexia, polydipsia, they'll have fatigue, lethargy, muscle weakness, they can have nausea, vomiting, constipation, obstipation, uh, and with severe enough dehydration, they can have uh, renal insufficiency or overt renal failure, and cardiac arrhythmias. This is the shortened QT interval that uh, is associated with severe hypocalcemia. Um, We can see that there's practically no QT interval here. And what's the treatment? Saline. You've got to hydrate them. Corticosteroids can be very effective in myeloma and can, uh, um, and in some patients can even normalize the calcium level. Uh, salmon calcitonin probably works the fastest uh, of any of the agents we give, but it's associated with tachyphylaxis. Uh, so after a couple of doses, it's not going to work uh, very well. Far and away, the treatment of choice for hypercalcemia malignancy is the bisphosphonates. Atidronate was the um, was the first of the bisphosphonates we used to use. Uh, it doesn't uh, inhibit osteo, while it inhibits osteoblastic activity, it doesn't allow the uh, laying down of fresh bone. So the later generations like pimidronate uh, were able to get the um, calcium uh, under control but allowed fresh bone to be laid down. Zolandronic acid works a little bit faster than pimidronate and can be uh, given as an outpatient Uh, but it's a lot more expensive. Uh, I think most of these patients are going to be admitted anyway, and I don't um, see any um, greater utility to using zolandronic acid than pimidronate, quite frankly. Uh, But renal failure is a complication, so even if you're going to use a bisphosphonate, the first thing you need to do is hydrate the patient so they need volume, volume, volume. Gallium, Gallium nitrate, we used to use as an alternative when nothing else was working. It's a five-day infusion. Uh, It's a toxic medicine, and I think we've gotten completely away from that. I don't think anyone uses gallium anymore. And for the completely refractory cases, uh, there's plicomycin, which is essentially chemotherapy. It used to be called mithromycin, but because of all the bad side effects, they changed the name to plicomycin. I don't understand that either. And then... What I'm going to touch on um, very briefly, uh, because this is a lecture in and of itself, but it comes up in the um, medical ICU from time to time, um, is febrile neutropenia, uh, and you need to know at least the the basics, and the basics uh, are not to worry about the new viruses that make people explode. Actually, um, we're probably dealing with that now. It's an, it's an old, it's an old, uh, it's an old medical journal, but um, um, it's even relevant today. 
So we're all familiar with, if we're not familiar with this slide, we're familiar with the concept of the slide, that the lower the granulocyte level, the greater your risk of, um, of an infection. But it's not solely the absolute granulocyte level that sets patients up to infection. It's, it's never as simple as that. There are multiple factors, so it depends on whether somebody is in remission or relapse. It depends on whether the counts are rising or falling. Uh, it also depends on how long somebody is going to be neutropenic. So um, being slightly under 500 white cells for a day, uh, undergoing chemotherapy for breast cancer is a lot different than being under 100 white cells for a month um, when you're getting ablative therapy for, um, for acute leukemia. And there are patients who have idiopathic uh, neutropenia that don't get infected at the same rate of the leukemics. Why? Uh, because in addition to uh, blowing out the bone marrow, we also make them slough their mucosa and give them a route of infection as well. Plus, we stick things into them, uh, lots of infusions, um, uh, and set them up for infections in a multifactorial uh, manner. So what's the important thing uh, to remember about febrile neutropenia? What's going to box the patients the, you know, fastest? It's going to be the gram-negative infections, all right? That's, that's what's going to kill them uh, in, in uh, an hour or two. Uh, and, and of the gram-negative infections, what do we worry about the most? Pseudomonas and all the bad actor-bactors. So it's important to make sure that you have the anti-pseudomonal therapy on uh, immediately, there have been uh, studies over the years, uh, more than I can count, about empiric use of, of uh, gram-positive, anti-gram-positive uh, coverage, and, uh, the, you know, they've all shown that whether you use it immediately or you use it for recurrent, uh, wait until the fever recurs or it doesn't go away, it makes no difference. I will guarantee you that if you don't honcho the antibiotics, and Dr. Netzer and I actually saw this uh, when we just assumed that the nurses knew what the protocol was and didn't actually direct traffic, if uh, vancomycin and, a gram -negative, and the gram-negative coverage are ordered at the same time and come up at the same time, they will hang the vancomycin first unless you direct the traffic. Um, the gram-negative gram antibiotic, this, um, um, you know, the cefepime or, or uh, the meropenem is going to be on the shelf uh, waiting while the patient goes into septic shock. Uh, it's important to make sure, like, like any other septic shock, that the gram-negative coverage gets, gets hung first. I think I'll just stop there and take any questions. We'll end early. Sure. Yes. So the thing is, it doesn't take a lot to make these people sick. In the literature that I'm familiar with, what percentage of the time do you actually recover cultures, um, blood cultures? And it's 15% of the time. And what's the outcome of those who have positive blood cultures? It's actually worse because those are people who got treated later. You know, um, they were probably sicker for a while, and they, they, they were fermenting before they got their antibiotics. 
um, and didn't get treated fast enough. So um, what percentage of, uh, pac of neutropenic patients are going to have either positive cultures or a clear source of infection? About half of them. Um, now, you know, so people go through the machinations about, well, what does, you know, you know, there are other things that cause fever. Maybe it's a non, you know, infectious fever. Um, so what uh, percentage of neutropenic patients who don't have positive cultures, who don't have a clear source, are going to defervesce with any bacterial antibiotics? And that's going to be the remaining half. So about 75-80% of the time, while we think about the new viruses that make people explode, maybe it's CMV, you know, maybe it's you know, something weird going on, maybe we have to look at parasites. No, what they need is, you know, when they present with febrile neutropenia, you have time for everything else. It's not going to kill them in 45 minutes. Um, so what's going to kill them are the bacterial infections, especially the gram-negative infections. Uh, you can, you know, unless they have an obvious catheter infection or they've had a history of an MRSA infection before, you don't need to pull the trigger on vancomycin as soon as they walk in the door. Yes, we get cultures uh, immediately. What about sending them down for a chest X-ray? So there is a movie by Patty Chayefsky in um, 1971 called The Hospital. And the amazing thing is how little has changed in 40 years. So one of the, so George C. Scott was in it, he was going through, you know, why did you park a dead body in radiology in the middle of the night? And he said, because a dead body in radiology wouldn't be noticed for five hours in the middle of the night. And that's true today, too. You send somebody down from the ward, from a medical ward, in the middle of the night for a chest X-ray, they will be bumped for every sprained ankle and hangnail that comes into the emergency room. Rigor mortis will set in before anybody realizes they're there. All right, and what are you going to see on the routine chest X-ray in a neutropenic patient? Because it's not the bacteria that causes the infiltrate; it's the white cells. They don't have any white cells. You know, uh, what about the abscess? You're not going to see an abscess. You may see a little erythema. There may be a little pain. It's going to look pretty unremarkable. You're not going to get a flocculent mass until the white cells come back. So rather than parking them for radiology while the infection's brewing before you give them antibiotics. Um, doesn't make any sense. You're not going to see much. So the other thing is, you know, uh, LPs. Uh, one, if you've never LP'd somebody with a platelet count below 20,000, try it. Uh, it'll be an experience. I speak from experience. <laughs> so, uh, and what are you going to find? Usually nothing. You know, those are secondary infections. These people are going to be very sick before they ever get a meningitis. Their mental status changes due to toxemia. You know, it's it's the routine infections first. You're not going to see white uh, you know white cells in the CSF. They don't have the white cells to put in the CSF if they're neutropenic. So um, so the important thing is get a set of blood blood cultures and get them their antibiotics. If they have an obvious, they have an obvious indication for gram-positive coverage for vancomycin, then yeah, obviously I would use it. But for impure coverage without a clear indication like an infected line 
for a known previous MRSA infection, I wouldn't 